Alexandra Rajitskaya. I'm from Cole Eye Institute, uh, Cluing Clinic, and I'm excited to invite you to today's uh, new Retina Radio Journal Club that is done together with Bitbuckle Society. I have a pleasure of being joined by my three colleagues. Uh, we have Dimitris Kondrov from the University of Chicago in Chicago. Uh, Dimitra, how are you today? I'm good. Hi, everybody. Awesome. And we have uh, Mike Lupus from Will's Eye Hospital and Mid-Atlantic Retina in Philadelphia. Mike, how are you doing? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Excellent. We're excited to have both of you. And uh, we have Emmanuel Chang uh, from Retina and Vitreous uh, of Texas in Houston. Manny, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. So what we're going to do today, we're going to uh, talk about two studies and uh, we're going to summarize the studies for you and then have a discussion on, on these studies. So the first study that we're going to talk about is a C5 inhibitor, avacin captad pegol uh, for geographic atrophy due to age-related macular degeneration. Uh, this is the GATHER1 trial uh, that was published uh, by Glenn Jaffe and colleagues, and uh, it came up in uh, April 21 uh, issue of ophthalmology. And second uh, study that we're going to cover is um, characterizing new onset exudation in randomized phase two FILI trial of complement inhibitor uh, plan for geographic atrophy. And this is a publication first authored by Dr. Charlie Wyckoff, uh, and uh, it came out in the March issue, March 2021 in ophthalmology. So let's start with uh, a summary of uh, these uh, papers, and we'll start with the GATHER1 trial, and I'll ask Dimitra if you can summarize that for us. Okay, thank you, Alexandra. Thanks for the invitation. It's it's great honor to be part of this uh, great group for uh, this discussion. So, gather one is uh, the purpose of the study was actually to identify the safety and efficacy of uh, advanced avancing pactad. We call it Zimura for uh, uh, interest of time going forward and uh, convenience for geographic atrophy secondary to uh, age-related macular degeneration. Uh, Zimura targets C5, which is one of the downstream factors in the copulum cascade and this was an international prospective randomized double mass sham controlled pivotal phase two and three clinical trial it had a total of 286 patients and the primary outcome was basically to see if zimura decreases the mean rate of change in geographic atrophy over 12 months uh, mostly on autofluorescence and the time points were baseline six months and 12 months uh, with monthly injections so the results were that there was a reduction in the mean rate of geographic atrophy um, and that was calculated by the square root transformation. And at month 12, both the two milligram dose and the four milligram dose of Zimura decreased the rate of uh, geographic atrophy uh, about 28% uh, in both groups. And they were both statistically significant compared to the sun group. And in general, they were well tolerated. There were not any ocular systemic adverse events. Um, in conclusion, the study say that the drug is safe and effective. And actually, a second pivotal trial got approved and enrolled, which is going to be the GATHER2. Uh, an important point I think is to make that even though the, there was no ocular uh, uh, severe adverse effects and systemic, there was an increase of the rate of uh, exudative neovascular AMD patients, uh, about 9% in the Zimura group, and these eyes were not included in the analysis of the geographic AM because there was concerns that would affect the measurements of geographic atrophy. 
Well, Dimitro, that's, a, that's an excellent summary of this paper. Uh, very exciting results. Uh, and I think all of us in the world of retina are excited that we might have something finally for these patients. So uh, Mike, let me ask you a question on the study. Uh, what do you think is, um, you know, looking at the inclusion exclusion criteria in this trial, and um, they uh, didn't include patients who had, for instance, a new vascular MD in the other eye, or patients uh, who had uh, GA involving the fovea. How do you think it applies to your geographic atrophy patients that you see day to day in clinic? Yeah, it's a good question. And the, the follow up trial that's going on, for instance, I had a great patient who had um, non subfovial GA, but once she got into the room for ETDRS vision, she was actually 2020, and you're excluded from the most recent trial if you're not 2025 or worse. So I think the bottom line will be this will likely be a first-in-class agent as long as it's approved and it meets an unmet clinical need. Um, but the clinical indications we use it for, unless the label is very restrictive, may be a little bit different than what's used in the actual clinical trial. And I think it's it's you know it's always important to uh, to see right what the indications are going to be because uh, the geographic atrophy patients that we see they're so diverse you know somebody might have a little bit of a GA or somebody might have this huge uh, geographic atrophy multifocal unifocal all kind of patterns of uh, autofluorescence so it's it's going to be interesting to see how these trials are going to um, apply to these patient populations. The other question that comes up and um, any maybe I'll ask you is, what do you think about the treatment regimen? How, how do you think it's going to be adopted by providers and by patients? Uh, I think that's a great question. You know, obviously, even now with anti-VEGF injections for wet macular degeneration, um, the treatment burden is quite high. You get uh, treatment fatigue, and the challenge would be for many of these patients, especially if in wet macular degeneration where patients even see an initial improvement, when they get treated, now you have a disease entity that we know is progressive with time with GA, but patients don't appreciate a difference in their vision. To ask them to come in regularly for treatment, uh, there's gonna be a lot of counseling, a lot of showing images to try to educate patients the importance of uh, staying with treatments over the course of time. Yeah, I think, and we'll touch a little bit about it um, as we discuss both of these publications. Uh, it is it is something that's uh, important, and um, I think one of the um, uh, webinars I was attending, somebody mentioned, you know, we're going to be a little bit like glaucoma doctors. You know, the patient doesn't perceive a problem, and you're like, well, you need you need treatment. So um, let's move to uh, this post hoc analysis of the Philly trial because uh, Dimitra touched upon it in the Gather One trial, and this is this concept of uh, conversion to exudation. So uh, Manny, do you want to walk us through this trial and the results? Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, so the Philly trial was published earlier this year. One, uh, it came about because many of the study uh, investigators noted in the Philly trial that they saw or they felt like they saw a higher instance of wet conversion in eyes that were treated. And so in this paper publication, it's a post hoc analysis of that phase two data, uh, looking at uh, Pixeta Kuplan, uh, the APL2 in geographic atrophy. Uh, they followed these patients and treated them for a year. There were in the original, in the trial phase two, there were monthly injections and every other month injections during the year. And then afterwards they stopped and they followed them out for six months. Uh, they were looking at specifically at the rate of conversion in patients who got treatment uh, with the uh, 
uh, complement, the C3 complement inhibitor. Uh, they noted that it definitely worked in the Philly trial, that it reduced geographic atrophy, but they also did identify that a, a sizable percentage started showing signs of wet macular degeneration after treatment. It didn't see a temporal association, but it definitely was significantly increased, as well as if the fellow eye had a, treat, had a history of wet macular degeneration, they also noticed a higher rate of conversion in these patients. So I think these are, these are some of the interesting post hoc analyses, and, uh, and of course they have limitations, right? Uh, these were um, conversions that were identified by investigators, and uh, I think there wasn't as rigorous uh, maybe um, analysis of what happened uh, once these patients uh, were deemed to have converted to um, neovascular AMD. Uh, even in the paper, it mentions that not all of them got a phase and, uh, um, you know, just because it wasn't uh, mandated as the protocol. So, uh, Dimitra, one of the uh, things that's mentioned in the study is attention to uh, OCT finding of double layer sign. And there's been a lot of discussion of double layer sign, I feel, in the last couple plus years. So what is your take on it? Do you look for it in clinic? Do you do anything when you find it? What, what's your approach? So uh, I, I look at the OCTs not for the lack of or no exudation. Obviously, that's the first thing we look for someone with has a dry macular generation, if they have uh, interretinal fluid or subretinal fluid and hemorrhage on exam. But I, I always look very suspiciously on this like low line PD, which is what this uh, double layer sign represents. And I think that for me, OCT and geography um, has really helped these cases uh, to identify these like non-exudative vocal membranes um, that uh, they have not converted to exudative uh, uh, phase first. So I think it makes a lot of sense of that fact that when they look back and saw the eyes that developed exudative AMD, actually many of these eyes did have this underlying low-line BDs that may be harboring some non-exudative or the beginning of, of membranes. So I think that looking at the CT and possibly including OCT and geography, especially strep source, because it has a type one membrane that sometimes irregular um, non-strep source OCT and geography can be hard to kind of like reveal the membrane. I think it's gonna be a very important component, not only for the next trials, but also when we bring this to clinical practice, now that we know this is a risk factor. Yeah, I think I think it's been it was mentioned in the discussion that OCTA was not part of the trial, and uh, it would be very curious to see exactly what OCTA looked on in these patients. And um, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask uh, Mike. You know, uh, we are talking about uh, these GA patients, uh, right? We used to uh, probably just get OCTs on them, maybe some uh, autofluorescence, and now we are running into you know um, there's different ways to look at GA to begin with. Most of these trials that we're discussing today are looking at autofluorescence, but there is a lot of other studies looking at other ways to look at these patients. Uh, we are looking now, should we be doing a phase on them and OCTAs, as Dimitri mentioned. How do you, how do you see this um, uh, imaging uh, um, kind of aspect of GA uh, management um, being incorporated in your practice, whether or not these drugs get approved? Yeah, it's a good question. Um... One thing that's always dawned upon me is, especially if there's a family member in the room and it's unclear what the cause of vision loss is and there's possibly GA, um, even if you show them an OCT, it's uh, very difficult for the lay eye to see geographic atrophy or even if we see it on the IR, but uh, showing the patient or the family member a fundus autofluorescence 
and that blackness um, and equating that to cell death is a, a very easy analogy for patients and families to understand and potentially initiate a discussion for a clinical trial or a potential treatment that may be available in the future. Uh, you know, in some of the sister studies for uh, Zimura and Stargardt's disease, they're looking at NFOS OCTs of the outer retina to further quantify these uh, types of changes, uh, complement inhibition. So I think we have to see, but probably fundus autofluorescence is the most accessible and easiest non-invasive test we have right now, especially in some of these patients who aren't great fixators. And I'd like just to make a comment on that, uh, uh, add to what Mike said. Uh, this kind of like more of uh, advanced imaging techniques, it depends a lot of the manipulation doing custom segmentations uh, where you put the slab of the outer segment, especially with OCT and geography, geographic atrophy, it's very tricky to interpret. Um, I have many patients that come to me that they've been treated for wet AMD because someone did an OCT and geography and saw vessels, it was actually a segmentation default and it looked like vessel actually was the coronocapillary. So it's important these image modalities, but in non-experienced hands, it can use a lot of artifacts and it's not as good reproducible as a photosynthesis of things. So we need to be careful when we set a plan is more advanced that the, the practitioners really feel comfortable interpreting these images. Excellent point. So we are going to take a little break and we're going to come back for more in-depth discussion of this uh, manuscripts. And uh, thank you guys for excellent comments so far. Welcome everybody back to the new Retina Radio Journal Club uh, done with con in conjunction with Bitbuckle Society. And uh, I'm Alexandra Rajaskai. I'm joined by Dimitris Kondra, Emmanuel Chang, and Michael Klufus. And we are talking today about geographic atrophy and some of the promising drugs. Uh, uh, we have some early trials. None of the uh, none of these uh, yet uh, have the, all the final results, um, but some very exciting uh, information on the growth of GA. And uh, we talked about the GATHER1 trial and also about Philly trial. Um, we also touched upon uh, the fact that in, these, uh, in both of these trials, uh, we saw that the patients who were treated with the study drugs um, ended up uh, converting to new vascular MD at a higher rate than the patients who were treated with sham. And of course, it's hard to compare these particular uh, trials because the, um, the patients who were included less slightly different, uh, the treatment uh, intervals are slightly different. So, um, but we do, we do see that there is a signal there. So I'm gonna ask uh, the first tough question uh, to Manny and uh, nobody really knows, but there's some theories out there why uh, we might be seeing this increased uh, neovascular AMD conversion. Uh, Manny, do you wanna comment on that? Oh, thanks for asking me the question. Um... You know, the interesting thing about the post hoc analysis was even though they didn't see a temporal association, they did find a dose dependent. The patients who were injected monthly compared to every month had a higher frequency of neovascular conversion. They also identified those patients who had this double layer sign or the fellow eye became or developed what had wet macular generation, uh, which were excluded in the, the Zimmer trial, but in the Philly, they, they, they analyzed that. And those patients had a higher instance of conversion. Um, there's been data that's come about. We know complement factor mutation, the H mutation, the cascade is important. People who carry these mutations have a higher uh, complement activation in their systemic system. And that then forms a membrane attack complexes, which damages the RP and atrophy. But the complement system is also important, not only for 
um, uh, innate immunity and fighting off infections, but also in inflammation, but also for clearance mechanism to clear the debris. And we know the RP is highly, highly active to clear out uh, photoreceptor processing. Uh, and so the curious part would be is whether or not if we are suppressing complement activation and suppressing the body's clearance of kind of waste product buildup and debris, whether or not that is triggering or promoting eyes that have this predisposition for wet macular degeneration to develop a neovascular membrane. Um, and that may be why we see these double layer sign patients are more predisposed or fellow eye having a history of wet AMD. There may be an underlying kind of complement dysregulation that predisposes them to wanting to form a neovascular membrane. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I think uh, as we learn more and more and we have uh, more definitive data, as we talked uh, early in the segment, you know, these patients maybe uh, weren't analyzed as we would want them completely, you know, with some of the other imaging modalities, we might have even more information. Demetria, if you, uh, let's, let's imagine, uh, you know, these drugs or one of these drugs or both of these drugs are approved. Uh, what, how do you see this fitting into your practice with this aspect? of neovascular AMD. Um, what are your thoughts on that, um, on that problem that we're seeing? Um, as was pointed out in discussions in both, in, especially in the field paper, um, I think it's a concern and definitely would like to see more data out to see how uh, the outcomes of these patients are. When in about having the discussion with the patients, I think it's important if they have already wet empty in the other eye and the idea that they may have to have double treatments in the second eye in addition to monthly treatments in the eye with AMD, uh, it may be a hard sell. So I think it may be hard to recruit patients or persuade patients, telling them you have like 10 or 20% chance you may develop what AMD desire as well and want to continue treating you in addition to continue treating you for your geographic atrophy. And the burden is a problem for these patients. I mean, it's, they're already struggling to keep up with the schedule as it is. Um, another important thing is that at some point we will need to uh, see what's the long-term uh, outcomes and uh, for the vision. And also there's some evidence now that sometimes these uh, membranes that develop at the edge of the geographic atrophy may actually protective and they need to slow down the progression of geographic atrophy from other studies uh, that were uh, actually published this year. So I think they still need to be learned before we finalize our guidelines for the clinic besides the criteria from the FDA. And it will be interesting also to see genetic testing results to see if there's a difference in between the genetic makeup of these patients that develop exudative AMD or they don't. And maybe if we take a kind of a bigger event picture view, uh, and maybe I'll ask you, Mike, you know, thinking uh, even uh, without neovascular AMD component, but just uh, GA, uh, and uh, these are the patients that we used to see, you know, maybe every six months, uh, maybe in some cases every year, and now we, we have a treatment. How do you think it's going to affect our day-to-day -day retina practices? Yeah, Demetra and others have brought up a good point about the genetic testing. And what I've been surprised clinically is, you know, many of the patients in their 90s may have geographic atrophy, but if their other eye is okay, they may be reluctant to undergo therapy in their worst eye. Um, but if you look at some of the younger patients who develop early onset GA, they likely have uh, complement factor uh, variants that predispose them. And these are much more active people who uh, may be more apt to pursue treatment. So I'm interested in incorporating genetic testing into my practice. I'll give you an example. One patient 
she says to me, uh, she was GA in like her early 60s. And uh, she says, oh, I got genetic testing at some point, 23 and me. I said, well, I'm not sure what it is, but um, I'll call you back later. Let's consider a trial. And I call her back on the phone. I bet, I bet it's CFH uh, and arms too. And that's what they test for. She's like, oh, you're right. It was CFH, CFH. But she's like, I don't want to be in a trial unless it's a CFH treatment. And I think that's a really savvy and smart patient. And, uh, you know, we're going to be seeing more and more of that, whether we're testing on our own or involved in some of these trials that are using widespread genetic testing for a geographic atrophy. And, uh, and Dimitra, you know, how you know we talked about the two trials kind of uh, uh obviously different approach but both complement approach how do you see this fitting in into uh all the other approaches and um kind of targets that we have for ga well i think that uh the verdict is still to be out and you know we need to be open-minded to kind of uh even if one trial gets approved to still be active and recruiting patients for other agents that may be even better or safer or they may have better long-term effects uh but just to make a point, I think the most motivated patients probably going to be the ones already lost vision from GA1I and then they experience what it feels like and I think probably they will be the patients that will be more inclined to be recruited um, either for trials or for uh, uh, or for uh, actually starting the treatment that they know what's coming and they're very motivated to make sure it doesn't happen in their good eye as well. I think patients I've seen too, who um, ask how much is it progressing visit to visit who may not have vision loss. And if you can show them definite progression over a one, two, three year period, sort of like a glaucoma progression analysis, they may be more apt to pursue treatment. Whereas if they don't see it progressing, they say, well, why would I want an intervention if it's going so slowly? And I think that you're, you're hitting very, you know, all of you guys are making very important comments, right? Uh, because there's also a lot of uh, studies focusing on progression, right? Who is that patient that uh, if we don't intervene, if we do have treatment, uh, that uh, we might lose vision? Whereas somebody who, you know, it's probably going to be stable for a number of years um, because, um, you know, these, these treatments, or at least the, the two that we're talking about, uh, they're they're frequent injections, you know, these are, these are not, um, uh, you know, come every, every six months. And um, uh, maybe Manny, I'll, I'll get you input. So, you know, as this is moving forward, are you, are you uh, going to see patients on Saturdays to do more injections? <laughs> it's going to be tough. I, I think, you know, thank God we have longer acting treatment agents for wet macular generation, because otherwise it's, it's going to be hard. My fingers are going to get tired. <laughs> uh, well, I think you guys have uh, have made uh, very um, very uh, poignant comments. Um, excellent discussion. I do want to see if anybody has any any other thoughts uh, before we wrap up. The only thing I want to say is that let's not forget until we have something definite about the importance of diet and Mediterranean diet to decreasing risk of geographic atrophy. And I think that overall we should uh, spend a little more time also to educate our patients about that based on the recent paper that came out with uh, analysis from, uh, uh, from the RSO data, because right now that's all we have. Excellent point, and maybe a topic for the next uh, general club. Absolutely. So thank you so much uh, to Dimitra, Manny, and Mike uh, for joining me. Uh, this was the new Retina Radio General Club together with Bitbuckle Society. Thank you. Thank you.